Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, guys. So what can drug law reform learn from other social movements, especially LGBT? This is Stop and Search on Scroobius Pips Distraction Pieces Network, brought to you by Acast in association with Lit UK. Here we go then. Behind your barricades. Yeah, but how long can I stay? Behind your barricades. Where to bow seldom Let's get straight on then. What can we learn from other social movements? We're joined by Peter Tatchell, who is a renowned human rights activist. He's been in the news over the last few decades on various social causes, uh, fluent in LGBT and also knows his stuff on drug policy reform. So thanks so much, Peter, for coming on and doing this. Steve Topple is a canary writer, independent journalist. You might have seen him on RT. Uh, he knows his stuff. He, he knows his stuff on social causes, social movements, addiction, you name it. Thanks, Steve, for popping along and joining this conversation, along with Jane Slater, who is the project manager of Anyone's Child. If you heard the last conversation on Stop and Search, you would have heard the mums that want to legalise drugs. Well, Jane heads up the operation of Anyone's Child. Her inbox is filled with bereaved family members that want to reform our drug laws. Let's get straight on and have this conversation. What can we learn? How can we push this forward? Here we go. I watched the film Pride and it just completely inspired me of how social movements can dovetail and they can actually get some traction. So this is why we've got Peter Tatchell and Steve Topple to discuss how LGBT have made significant changes, not just in their own community, but outside of that as well. And would you say that is true, Peter, that there is a power within LGBT that can be harnessed for other, other uses? Well, first of all, I'd like to say that... Um to put all this in context, um, I think it's generally acknowledged from many different surveys that LGBT recreational drug use is much higher than average. Uh, the level and types of recreational drugs used by particularly gay and bisexual men is very much higher than the general population. Um, in the old days, it was cannabis, ecstasy, uh, cocaine. Nowadays, increasingly, it's GHB, 
and also uh, crystal meth. And there is, in recent years, the rise of what's called chemsex parties, where guys go to a club, but usually a private home, where they will, by a mutual agreement, um, take large volumes of often quite dangerous drugs um, and have usually multiple sex partners. And this has led to, of course, um, a big impact in terms of HIV and other sexually transmitted infections. Um, many of those people, in a normal one-on-one -on -one situation outside of a chemsex party circumstance, would probably use a condom or not do dangerous sex. But with inhibitions lowered and sexual excitement heightened, the level of unsafe sex is much, much higher. And it has fueled, until very recently, a huge explosion in both HIV and other sexually transmitted infections like gonorrhea, syphilis, and uh, chlamydia. Interestingly, what's happened in the last couple of years is that trend has been somewhat in reverse. People are still going to the chemsex parties and still often having unsafe sex, but now they take PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis. That is a drug that if you take it beforehand, it will almost entirely eliminate your risk of getting HIV. So what's happening now is a lot of men are doing this, and the new level of HIV infection has dropped by 40% in the last year or so. A huge, astonishing achievement. And that is not thanks to the Public Health Service, which is refusing to provide PrEP, but because people are going online and buying it uh, from private sources, sometimes through um, online websites like I Want My Prep, um, where they go there and get um, medically certified PrEP that they can be sure is, is actually PrEP and does actually work. They're taking it, going to their parties, and then the consequence is that new transmission rates are falling very, very dramatically. So that's really good news. On the upside, that's the good news. On the downside, of course, um, although they're having unsafe sex and not becoming HIV infected because they're taking PrEP, they are getting other sexually transmitted infections. So the rates of gonorrhea and... Uh, syphilis have gone up by a fifth in the last, um, I think in 2015, the last figure, the last year of which we have figures. So that's just a bit of context in terms of recreational drug use in uh, the LGBT community, or most particularly the gay and bisexual male community. Uh, there's been no evidence and no research, as far as I know, into lesbian uh, and bisexual women or to trans or intersex people. Uh, in terms of what the drug reform movement can, or drug law reform movement can achieve or secure or copy or adapt from the LGBT movement, I think it's a bit, a bit tenuous. But I would say that the pattern of LGBT change in terms of the law really was as a result of a twin track approach of insider lobbying by very mainstream fairly small C conservative LGBT group called Stonewall, who lobbied MPs and you know, social institutions in the traditional way, and then direct action by groups like Outrage on the outside, who took nonviolent direct action, civil disobedience, 
to put those issues in the headlines, to get people talking, and so on. So the outrage strategy was very much, yes, we support law reform, we support lobbying, but to actually achieve those changes, we have to adopt tactics similar to the black civil rights movement in America or the suffragette movement here. Um, for many decades, people in power did not listen. There was no substantive law reform in Britain until 1999. There was a partial, limited decriminalization in 1967, but all the anti-gay laws remained in place and levels of arrest in the 80s and 90s was almost as high as in the 1950s. Um, so when the police wouldn't listen, when the government wouldn't listen, the outrage strategy was to challenge them directly. So we invaded and occupied police stations. We interrupted the press conferences of the Metropolitan Police Commissioner. We harassed government ministers in the street or at their local weekly advice surgeries. We interrupted government ministers' events. Um, and the purpose of that was not the protest itself. For us, protest was never an end alone. Protest was a means to an end. And the purpose of the protest was to put these issues on the political agenda. So when we did a mass kissing in Piccadilly Circus in about 1990 to protest in those days that same-sex couples were being arrested for merely kissing, holding hands or cuddling, that was regarded as indecent in those days, our mass kissing, um, when we told the stories of the individual couples who'd been arrested under these laws, you know, two, two women, one giving the other a goodbye kiss at a bus stop before she went home, you know, things like that. The combination of uh, the fact that people were being arrested for consenting victimless behaviour, usually where no member of the public had complained, and they're getting a criminal record as a result, uh, and people heard their personal stories, that really did change public perceptions. It did change. We won the Battle of Hearts and Minds. The police lost really badly. They looked, we made the point that they were wasting resources, you know, investigating and prosecuting people for crimes or so-called crimes for which there are no victims. And that, you know, how could they complain about the lack of resources to deal with sexual violence against women or racist attacks when they're putting all these resources into harassing gay and bisexual men? So that combination of the direct action, you know, in that case, the kissing in the Piccadilly Circus was a clear defiance of the law. We actually issued a challenge. If you think this law is worth enforcing, if you think it's worth defending, if you th we think it should be made on the statute books, come and arrest us. And we did that on many, many occasions on different issues. And sometimes we were arrested. But it made the point, because it got lots of news, and of course the point of getting on the news was very simple. The media is the main means of social communication in society. You can have a public meeting, which is great. It reaches a few hundred people. You can go leafleting in the shopping centre. It reaches a few hundred people. Get on the nightly television news. It reaches five or six million. So our strategy was much to use protest as a way of putting those issues on the nightly news bulletins and in the press to raise awareness among the public, to generate a debate, and you know, phone-in programmes, you know, and TV and radio, and then of course put pressure on the authorities because when these issues were in the news, then journalists would go to the government minister or the um, police chief and say, well, how do you justify doing this? You know, what, what's your response? So the authorities were under pressure, the public was being made aware, and 
over the process of doing these kinds of protests time and time and time again, gradually, slowly, like water dripping on a stone, it did change public consciousness. We turned public opinion around within a relatively short space of time, about, say, 10 years, um, to be in majority uh, in favour of LGBT equality. That hits the nail on the head. Uh, that completely taps into what we were saying upstairs, Jane, is how do we make this more of a mainstream issue? Do we do, we do this, the, for want of a better word, civil disobedience, or do we go for something that is sh- structured that hits the news? And I mean, we've been in both... In, you've been in reform longer than what I have, but you must have seen quite a change in the tactics that have gone with this. You know, that, that's really interesting. Um, and it's been a conversation we've actually had quite a number of times in Transformers... How much should we go for civil disobedience to make our point? And I think we're at a new point in drug policy reform. I think for years we were... Actually, the language wasn't developed around how you argue for policy reform. I think we went out and people thought we were nutters. And there wasn't the sophisticated way of talking about what legal regulation is, what the critique was, joining up the dots of the problems from the production through to the use of drugs... I don't think that was understood, and so I think we spent a very long time writing the materials, getting our arguments very straight, making sure that we can really stand up and have a, you know, our arguments are well made and we can convince the policymakers, but we're at a key change, and that, hence why we started Anyone's Child. It's our first effort at a really public-facing campaign, and my sense is that there is an appetite for this campaign. My, inboxes depressingly filled with stories from all over the world of people saying we want to do public facing campaigns how can we do this and we now have chapters of anyone's child in kenya canada belgium it's really it's really growing internationally so i'm very interested about whether the time has come to try civil disobedience tactics to make more of a public you know should we be going out to the streets and making these points or or are we in a point where you know, there's a lot of critique that, you know, the protest is no longer as effective as perhaps people might might think it should be. You're a journalist, Steve, and you must get quite a lot in your inbox of people that are clamouring for attention. We're, we're always sending out press releases wanting to have those press inches. Is it difficult to sift through and get the right campaigns that, to put out there from your point of view? Yeah, it is. Um, I... I get tens of emails a day um, saying, can you please report on this? Can you talk about this? Can you talk about that? And it is hard. I think there's two points to be made here. One, I completely agree that disruption um, and, if you like, civil disobedience is the way to go. Um, As Peter quite rightly said, protests can only do so much. Um, You have to actually, if you like, hit them where it hurts before you actually start to change anything. But I do disagree that the link between LGBT campaigns and this campaign is tenuous. I think if you mentioned the film Pride, uh, if you look at lesbian and gay supporting the minors, the campaign that supported the minors in Wales. Um, The whole reason that worked was because the LGBT community... Um, if you'd like, saw an opportunity to get the trade union movement on side with their campaign, looking for equality, um, and open the eyes of the miners. And they had a common enemy, if you like, which was, of course, at the time, the Conservative government. So I think in relation to drug reform law, it needs to be that um, law enforcement, which um, your campaign does, um, legal professionals, health professionals, parents, um, addicts, users themselves, if they all came together as a collective, because collective is the key to success, then that's where it could work. So I think there is something to be learnt. Um, 
but yeah. And I completely put my hands up the whole point of this podcast when Pip and I, Scribius Pip and I, conceived it, it was to get crossover audiences so that you can get different... I mean, Judith here is with, with, with the international... No, independent... International Doctors for Healthier Drug Policies. There you go. Nice. Um, and, and again, how can you argue with that? The fact that you're bringing in the medical sector and the fact that we're bringing in the law enforcement sector. And this is why, you know, I, as, as Steve said, why... I was very interested in LGBTQ and what the achievements they've made over the years, just in social programming and language. I'm quite conscious tonight of my language because Jane and I both attest that when you're in drug policy reform, there's going to be, you know, well-meaning things that people say, but are just so far off base. Prime example, we're talking about uh, safe injections facilities at the moment. Uh, the press are calling them shooting galleries. It's those little nuances in language that Peter, I'd imagine, have been there in LGBTQ right from, from the, the off of this issue. Has there been annoyances along the years that have managed to be ironed out? I think with every social movement, you often, when you're starting out from the fringes, it does take time to get a balanced, fair coverage. Initially, you're seen as extremist. Um, you're demonized and vilified, or even worse, ignored. Um, and that sort of happened a lot in the 70s and 80s. So I was involved in the Gay Liberation Front in the early 1970s. And there was very, very little media coverage of anything we did. We did some fantastic, brilliant stunts, like um, at the Miss World contest in 1971. We staged an alternative Miss World on the pavement outside the Royal Albert Hall with um, misused, misconceived and mistreated. <laughs> um, plus Miss Bangladesh, a starving, emaciated woman to symbolise the horror of the Civil War and the mass starvation. And a Miss Ulster, bloodied and bandaged to represent uh, the war in Ireland. Um, yeah, it, it was great street theatre and should have been on the nightly news and in the press, but they were so homophobic in those days, we just were not given the coverage. And that was even true in, in the 1980s. There was relatively little coverage. Um, so it took a great deal of perseverance and patience and determination to just keep coming back and back and back. I think what happened with outrage from 1990 when it was formed was, first of all, we were in a different era and, in a sense, those perhaps not very successful campaigns in the 1980s had sort of paved the way for outrage. But also, of course, uh, Section 28, the first new anti-LGBT law in Britain for nearly 100 years, that really put LGBT issues on the mainstream political agenda, thanks to Margaret Thatcher and her cronies. Um, and that gave us a sort of a hook. Um, the other thing I think was also was significant is that outrage made a very conscious attempt to professionalize radical activism. So I remember the standard of news releases and so on that LGBT groups used to do in the 70s and 80s, it was, it was terrible. Um, and that may be part of the reason why we didn't get much coverage. But I can remember when we sat down the initial forming group in Outrage, um, I brought a whole lot of examples of news releases from 
high-powered professional organizations ranging from the TUC and Amnesty International to Greenpeace and Cancer Awareness. And I said, well, this is how they do it. Let's take the best from each of these and use that as the template for our news releases so that we look professional. And we did that, and we made sure that our, our news releases always had, you know, the key points in the first paragraph, that we had um, statistics and research, references, and quotes from victims who could tell personal stories. And suddenly we noticed there was a huge explosion in media coverage. And then we went around and found sympathetic journalists. We didn't know who to go to first. We, we looked out for journalists who covered, who covered in a good way women's issues, race issues, human rights and civil liberties issues, and then had personal meetings with them. And we sat down and talked through them and, and got them interested. And then we literally fed them stories. And the story was, you know, it was there in the news release. All they had to do was like just re re rewrite it a bit. And it was, it was easy, easy work. Plus, we were told a compelling story. You know, to tell the story of two lesbians who had been arrested at Victoria Station in, I think, 1990, where one gave her partner a kiss and a cuddle goodbye as she was going back to her house in Brighton. They got arrested when they told that personal story. Even a lot of hard homophobes thought, well, they may not have been convinced, but they, they, they thought that was a, probably a bit much. So we did that. And also, I mean, <laughs> people may criticize me for it, but I, I always made the point, as I am tonight, wearing a shirt and tie. Because the traditional protester, the traditional protester in those days was a t-shirt and you know, not very smart. So I thought, let's confound the expectations. Let's look not what a traditional protester looks like, but what a professional um, you know, lobbyist and campaigner looks like. So I still said the same radical message, but I just had a different image. And all these things in combination, I think, helped us over time, drip, 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 get change. Um, you know, the first few times that outrage did shocking, provocative things, people were horrified. You know, we were denounced. But after the 30th or 40th time, people just shrugged their shoulders. Oh, it's them again. So the, the shock, the hostility was somewhat diffused. Also, a lot of our protests, we used humor. So humor is a very good way of disarming critics. You know, if, if you make someone laugh or even if they, you force them to suppress a laugh, um, that is a sort of a, a way in to break down that armor of, of, of homophobia, biphobia, and transphobia. So I don't know what you can take from that, but I think you know, there are a few examples of the way in which we operated to ultimately make a very successful campaign because up until, as I said, up, and, up until 1999, there'd been no significant law reform. But the outrage campaigns, together with the lobbying by Stonewall, did produce within about 10 years an avalanche of reform. I just want to chip in on that point, um, again, because I agree with Peter. It, it, it's probably hard for both of us to maybe um, put this into terms that um, drug reform campaigners can understand, because um, yourself, as you say, you work with some quite um, 
outrageous people who did some quite good stunts. Um, I do a lot of grassroots work with um, quite small campaigns in the UK which have progressively got bigger. I work a lot with a group called Disabled People Against Cuts, DPAC, um, who protest about um, austerity and the effects it has specifically on the sick and disabled people in this country. Um, and they are excellent. They put trade unions to shame um, at campaigning. They have blocked Westminster Bridge um, several times, stopping traffic in all directions. Um, they've occupied the lobby in Parliament, which got massive media attention. Um, and, and they are extremely good at getting their point across and getting it out there and getting people to notice uh, what they do. Another group is called Sisters Uncut. I don't think you may have heard of them. Again, they're excellent. Um, their displays are colourful. They use a lot of smoke bombs, um, a lot of chanting music. Um, and that is what works. That, as a journalist, is what grabs my attention um, when something is uh, sort of niche and interesting and it stands out, if you like. And as Peter quite rightly says as well, you do also, though, have to find sympathetic journalists because there are a lot of them out there who will just go, that's too complicated for me to look into. I haven't got time to investigate that properly or take the time to really research it and become interested. Um, but I maintain that any story as a journalist that you are given, you can make the public read it. It's about how you frame it and how you put it across. So if you find a sympathetic journalist, then as long as they're doing their job properly, then you should be in luck. But um, yeah, so colourful, more outrageous, the better. But again, as I say, that is maybe hard to put into terms of drug reform because it, it, it's more of an issue which you need to, I suppose, sensibly engage in on the political level, if you like, if that makes sense. It does make sense because... It's difficult from our side, isn't it, Jane, of balancing the stunts with the facts and figures. Um, anyone's child has done some great UN work, haven't they, with regards to actual physical displays of what, the, what your work is. Can you give us a bit of an explanation? Uh, well, that was our first sort of effort at going out and publicly protesting. And we united with families from lots of different countries outside the UN in, at their major General Assembly special session which was a sort of significant 10-year review of policy and the first sort of real opening we had to make a bit of, of noise. Um, I would say we have had... Uh, the one of the difficulties of that was, I think, one of my key bits of learning was the difficulty of trying to run multiple international stories. And actually, I found, whereas in my head, this wonderful global painting of all the different interests coming together made a brilliant news story. What the reality of our media is that they seem interested in very local interest stories and people in the UK is a story in the UK. Well, Mexico seems a little bit far away is the response I've been having. So I'm, I'm quite interested in how I continue to get all of these stories promoted in different ways and how we can play that. Um, yeah. One of the things linking on from that as well is that yeah there, there's always going to be people that have forgotten because of international lines but also within communities i was, I was getting briefed by a good friend of mine katie if she's if she's listening hi um she's she's a sociologist and she follows drug policy and lgbt and one of the things that she was briefing me on is the the kind of internal segregations that you can get within communities as well so in drug law reform for example cannabis consumers have gone one way and that's split down in the middle into recreational and medicinal cannabis users and then if there's been any call in the media for a uh, re reform on heroin and, and safe injection sites then there can be almost a bit of a backlash from cannabis consumers towards people that have got problematic heroin use 
is that has that been a problem within LGBT as well of certain sectors that are getting forgotten? I know sometimes you've you've mentioned as well that uh, people that are bisexual can quite often get pulled away. Is that a problem? Yeah, that, that actually I wanted to ask that question is how did you manage to unite all the different interest groups within the LGBT community under one umbrella? With difficulty. <laughs> Um, well, sometimes with difficulty, sometimes quite easily. But I think it's a bit like any social movement. Uh, it's very rare that it's homogenous. You know, a social movement is usually heterogeneous. And particularly a successful social movement, which is broad and large-scale. Inevitably, you have people from different uh, class and income backgrounds, people from different parts of the country, you know, male and female, black and white, faith and no faith. Um, that's all reflected within the LGBT community. And sometimes that does lead to tensions or omissions. So historically, um, women, uh, both lesbian and bi women, have felt their issues have somewhat been overshadowed by those of gay and bisexual men, particularly around law reform with regard to criminalization. Um, many times, you know, bisexual people uh, felt overlooked or ignored. I can remember in the 70s and 80s, I always used to make the point of using the phrase gay and bisexual. And I would get a lot, quite a lot of kickback from some gay people saying, oh, they're not really bisexual, they're just gay people who can't accept themselves. Uh, and that attitude still even exists a bit today. Uh, likewise with the trans issue, you know, you know, a lot of the organisations have not traditionally been supportive of trans issues and... Stonewall, the main group, has only just in the last year or so embraced trans issues, to, to their great credit, but very, very late in the day. So, yeah, there, there are issues and, and divisions, and it is hard to keep everybody together. There's also an issue about, you know, some sections of the LGBT community from particular ethnic and religious backgrounds are much harder hit by anti-LGBT prejudice and discrimination. So if you're an LGBT African or Muslim, um, you will tend to have less support in your community than if you're a white gay man or even a white lesbian woman. So you need to recognise that difference. You know, we're not all exactly in it together. There isn't entirely an equal playing field within our own community. And we have to make the positive effort to address those issues. So my foundation is currently running an LGBT solidarity campaign uh, with the Muslim community, uh, which is very difficult and has lots of obstacles, but it's our conscious attempt to address the fact that most LGBT organisations won't touch the Muslim community. They're afraid of being accused of being Islamophobic or racist. Um, but we have responded to the calls of LGBT Muslims themselves to take action. And this campaign is still on its embryonic stage, but we are making progress. And it's really interesting when I do talks to Muslim organizations or schools which have you know, significant Muslim pupil populations, how attitudes are beginning to change. But I've got to say that support from other LGBT, Muslim, uh, other, other LGBT organizations is not good, not good at all. Would you say, Steve, that there is an, an internal segregation to social movements, as, as I said, that probably is within drug law for a certain degree, is there in LGBT? Um, 
Yeah, so there is. Um, I, uh, as a bisexual man, I've experienced it myself within the LGBT community. Quite often, um, gay men are the most biphobic men going. Um, oh, you're on a journey. <laughs> Oh, you're just not honest with yourself or whatever. Um, and I've been, I, I was with a man for 12 years and I told everyone I was gay because I wasn't comfortable coming out as bisexual at that time. It's only been the past 18 months that I've actually come out as bisexual, which it, it seems a really weird way of doing things. Um, but it is. Um, so, yeah, I agree. And um, I'm a left-wing journalist. We see it all the time in the socialism movement. Um, there's certain factions constantly warring. Um, I'm sure you couldn't have missed the whole saga with Momentum, Unite, Tom Watson and Jeremy Corbyn yesterday. Um, it seems to be an inbuilt thing in most movements that there are there are um, segregations, if you like, and, and there's always differences which can't seem to be ironed over. Um, there's one point I do want to make, though. Um, I don't only sit on this arena if you like as a bisexual man um i'm also quite openly an alcoholic um i've been an alcoholic for over a decade um i've been in and out of recovery i don't like the term recovery i, I find it dangerous personally i think um you manage your addiction if you like um so I, I sort of come to this debate, if you like, with an additional level of nuance, because I've been through the process. Um, I, I, I was declared bankrupt. I was made homeless. Um, I was sectioned under the Mental Health Act. Um, and I'm, I've been dry for quite a while now. So I, I, that's, for this period, is quite good for me. Um, However, I think we're missing a trick with drug reform law, but specifically talking about addiction. Um, I, I, I think there's something we've always missed, and we're talking about segregation, we're talking about division, and how can we get different parties um, who are involved in drug reform policy to all engage and all um, cooperate, if you like. I've, I've got a quote which I've written down, because as an alcoholic, um, your frontal lobe functions go, your cognitive abilities go, and your long-term memory goes. So I've had to write things down, so bear with me. Okay, so I've, I've read a lot of stuff from a psychologist called um, Dr. Gabal Maté, um, who deals specifically with addiction, and there was a quote um, from one of his books, which I think is quite pertinent, and he, he said, um, uh, this is regarding capitalism and the society we live in, that um, his quote is, a sense of deficient emptiness pervades our entire culture. The addict is more painfully conscious of this void than most. The rest of us find other ways of suppressing our fear of emptiness. And I think whether, when people become addicts, um, we're all very quick to treat the physicalities and the biology of it. Um, we don't often deal with the psychological issues surrounding addiction. Um, I've been quite lucky with my NHS service where I used to live. Um, I, I had a psychologist um, and then a psychiatrist who looked after me, and I had um, a therapist who did CBT with me. But we don't address the underlying issues, and I think that there's something to be said for the fact that when people do become addicts, there's a lot more going on underneath the surface. And this sense of that people um, take substances to somehow escape from society and escape from the world they're living in, I think that's something that can go across whether you're um, living in Fitzrovia and you're a coke addict or whether you're living in um, South London and you're an alcoholic. There's something there which can unify people. It's just tapping into that and understanding maybe where addicts are coming from. And I think it, it's a societal problem in the sense of that everyone is trying to escape something when they are an addict. Um, and I, I don't think that's quite fully appreciated yet. We, we talk about, um, obviously, say, methadone treatments for heroin addicts. We need to be looking more at 
with regards to drug reform, why people become addicts in the first place. The really base, scrape it all away and get down to the real reasons why people become addiction, whether it's um, society, whether it's um, the health service in this country. Does, does that make sense? It, it, I, I think we really need to look at that in... in tandem with drug reform as well as why so many people are addicts i mean because the statistics are shocking um for example there's been a 57 percent increase in drug-related inpatient emissions in the past decade there's been a 44 percent rise in drug-related deaths in the past decade um and you see the same with um alcoholism 63 percent rise in number of inpatient admissions this is something which is just spiraling out of control and obviously what we're doing with drug laws and the situations around surrounding alcohol isn't bloody working because people are still dying and people are still becoming addicted and people are still being in and out of hospital all the time. So we're missing a trick somewhere and I do think it is that we need to look more at how us as a society, how we operate and why people become addicted in relation to that. So That is so true, isn't it, Jane? It's, it's, that's everything that we have to get to grips with, isn't it? It's that it's not the drugs, it's the people behind that story. And I think anyone's childhood, a perfect example of that, uh, Donna May that was just giving the talk just a minute ago, uh, in her written um, testimony on the Anyone's Child site, she says that her daughter was self-medicating for emotional traumas. Um, and we find that all the time, don't we? That there is emotional trauma at the end of this. Absolutely. Um, and I think, I think it was the example of Rat Park that made me think about this a bit differently. I don't know if people know it, but it was the example of... Um, a, a, a psychologist from Bruce Alexander decided to look at some rats in a cage that had two taps, one with heron coming out of it, one with water. In the cages, all of the rats medicated on the heroin. He then looked at this pattern and decided to go away and create an incredible place he called Rat Park, and this had wheels, it had nice things to eat, the rats could have sex... And what was really fascinating is a lot of the rats stopped using the heroin in this environment, which actually changed... I think that goes away from the sort of traditional thing of, oh, you try heroin once and that's you hooked. It's, there's a lot of other things going on behind there, which is what I think you're talking about. And I think it's taking the time to really try and understand that. But there's so much stigma and discrimination around this issue. I hear it with every family that contacts me. It's the, the, the years of secrecy of not telling their work colleagues about what they're going through at home. It's the horrible comment. You know, one mother called me up. She'd been visiting her son's grave and someone had turned around and said, oh, what did he die from? Oh, he, he was a heroin addict. And the comment back was, it serves him right. So we've still got a long way to go in terms of cutting around some of that issues and actually seeing drug users as people. It's depressing, but that, that is our challenge and that, that, that's one of the things we have to overcome and I think that's where there is a lot to learn. I think the stigma and discrimination, OK, we're 20 years behind, if not more, but, but we're catching up and I think there is a lot to learn here anyway. And that's exactly it again, Peter, is that the, the people behind the stories, the people that of... Well, it's probably still going on. It's probably almost certainly homophobia. Um, but people of the past that were having to deal with these issues, um, you know, kind of literally in the closet, is, is still, as Jane said, where we're at in drug law reform, uh, 20 years behind what LGBT people had to face. Is there still that stigma that's going on? Well, according to the British Social Attitude Survey, the most recent one, 
still about, I think, 28% of British people still believe that homosexuality is mostly or always wrong. I think that was 2014. Um, it may have, I, I suspect it's probably improved since then, but that's still very, very high. It surprised me. But then again, you have to ask yourself, well, how would they interpret that or what would that lead to? So, for example, I've done some tests on, on people of faith who hold that view. Homosexuality is mostly always wrong. And when you actually drill down, they say, well, yes, for them it's a sin according to their holy texts. But they themselves would not treat a gay person badly. They wouldn't discriminate against them. They wouldn't abuse them. It's just not something they would do or approve of. Now, that's perhaps not as you know, ideal as we would like in terms of acceptance, but what I'm trying to say is that there may be people who hold the view that homosexuality is mostly always wrong, but that wouldn't lead to them treating an LGBT person badly. Um, but still, it, it's, it's a high statistic still, until, you know, just over a quarter. Um, in terms of you know, creating a movement, the most successful movements tend to be the ones of the oppressed organising for themselves. And so the LGBT movement organized for itself. The disabled people's movement has organized for itself. The women's movement has organized for itself. You know, the number of people in the drug community who are able to organize for themselves is not non-existent, but relatively and proportionally, it's much smaller. And so therefore to have that authentic, self-organized, self-voicing community, which is really, really key to a successful campaign, um, that's a problem. It's not insurmountable. It doesn't mean, say, you can't achieve change. But, you know, if you can imagine, you know, 10,000, you know, articulate drug users who could articulate their experience and their, their demand, that would be much more effective than Transform doing it or any of us. Yeah, and I think the other thing is, you know, for 90% of drug users you know, use isn't problematic and it's definitely not something that people would define themselves by. And, it, and it, so it does mean a different thing there. And, you, you know, someone who smoked cannabis 10 years ago would hardly say, I am a drug user. But it doesn't mean these impact... It, it doesn't impact them. And I think that's one of the things that is a real challenge for us. Would you say that, Steve, that we're still not seeing the people behind the issues? We're still focused on the the front-facing headlines as opposed to who we actually are in society. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I mean, you see it all the time, as Peter quite rightly pointed out, with um, disabled people. Um, they're the best ones to organise what they want to do because they're the ones who bloody have live with it day in, day out. So no offence to anyone in this room, but and no offence to what you do. But it needs to come to the people who actually know, and, and I mean know, how this actually is and what effect it has on your life. Um, and... It needs to be them dealing with it. That's why um, Donna and Anne-Marie were so pertinent speaking, because they completely understand... What, uh, I say completely, no offence, ladies, 99%, 99.9% .9 understand, because as an addict, you never... Uh, No-one ever completely gets you, I don't think. Um, but yes, they do. And that's going to be the challenge for your drug reform movement, is getting people who actually live... Um, using substances day in, day out. Because, I, I mean, I understand we're not talking about addiction necessarily. Obviously, we're talking about drug reform generally. Um, because most people, let's be honest, most people can. Most people can take recreational drugs and be fine. They don't all become 
addicts. Um, so that is a challenge. It's striking the balance between recreational drugs as um, people who use them just at weekends or whatever, and those who do have issues with them. Um, and, and, and this kind of goes back to my point about the understanding of why people become addicts, because you have to split the two, um, I, I think, to make drug reform a success. Because while, of course, um, yeah, I agree, drugs do need to be reformed, and I know there's voices in this room who say that we should um, allow them to be legalised and controlled, that still doesn't deal with the fact that people still become addicted to them um, and, and they're still dangerous. So the same as with alcohol. I mean, my GP once said to me that um, alcoholism is far harder to beat than even heroin addiction. The reason being because you cannot get away from alcohol. I see it on the telly everywhere. There's a bar here, which Jason kindly... And this is kind of my experience. Jason emailed me before I came here saying, look, there's a bar, is that OK with you? And I'm like, yeah, it was fine, I go into a pub anyway. But you cannot get away from alcohol. Um, and I, I think it's important that you do differentiate between um, the addicts in this debate and the recreational side of it, because there is a vast difference, because most people do not become addicts. So. Yeah, I think I want to defend the um, legal regulation and what we're calling for, because to me this is about like getting a market that there is a demand for out of the hands of organised criminals and putting it in the hands of doctors, pharmacists and licensed retailers. I'm not claiming to have all the problems to addiction. I think our society has a lot. But what I'm saying is let's treat this as a health issue and let's put this in the issue of doctors who can actually help with the addiction rather than prisons and criminal sanctions, which is what we're currently doing. And so that's where we're coming at this from. I think that's where we can learn again from LGBT is that what you just said, there is harm reduction. And that's what happened in the LGBT community with, with the AIDS epidemic. There was a harm reduction that happened organically from within your movement. And you managed to reduce HIV rates. And that's something that we're having to do also within drug law reform. Do they organically happen or is that a conscious effort that people like yourself have to kind of round up and, and, and start talking health issues? Well, in the initial stages of what became known as the HIV epidemic or pandemic, um, you know, to begin with, it wasn't really clear how HIV was transmitted. Um, but the presumption was that it was probably sexual um, and certainly by sharing blood products. And so a group of people quite spontaneously in different countries, including this country, came up with the idea of what became known as safer sex. The idea of using condoms and other sexual practices that were not at risk or were less at risk of transmitting HIV. And that whole Safer Sex campaign really has played a huge positive role in, well, literally saving thousands of lives in this country and other countries, I mean, about hundreds of thousands of lives. Um, but that was a grassroots invented campaign, an idea that a group of, you know, in this country, probably the, the initial group was perhaps 10 or 15 people um, and then it's the idea spread and other people took it up. Um, and, you know, the LGBT community itself did a lot of the promotion in the early days because the government wouldn't. You know, in the early days, the government was not funding HIV organisations. Um, it had to be, like, bullied to give, I think, Terence Higgins Trust about £35,000 in 84-85, um, when the epidemic was already well-established. Um, but would have been even more well-established if it hadn't been for the grassroots Safer Sex campaign 
done by the Terence Higgins Trust uh, and other organisations. Um, so that was really, it's a, it's a really good example of an initiative that comes from within the group affected, which goes back to the whole thing here on, on the issue of drug law reform, you know, the, the, the difficulty and problems with not having many people who are identified drug users or even ex-users who can speak articulately about the issue. Many of you may have seen the, the recent campaign by Dignity in Dying, a uh, campaign for uh, legalised or assisted suicide. Um, the personal stories of people who are dying and in great pain. It's had a tremendous positive effect in changing public opinion and winning over members of parliament because they've heard those first-hand stories from people who have terrible terminal illnesses, who are suffering terrible pain and who want the right to die with dignity. So, you know, if you can find those kind of people, and it's a big ask, I think they're going to be key to the future of the campaign. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. That, that just completely again wraps up everything we do in there is is trying to find those I don't want to use the word credible because that's just awful and it's it's own right again it's including but those those prominent difficult cases that can really make a point that people can connect to. And I think again that's what anyone's child does. Yeah, I was gonna say I think that, that I mean that is where we're starting out from anyone's child is about starting to put human faces, real stories, make, make this issue come back from the policy. We've, I mean, we've won the policy argument. It's now about winning the public minds, I think, on this. Um, yeah, and so I think, I think that's where we're going now with this. And there's an interesting new organisation that's recently been set up called Recovering Justice, which is people in, in recovery telling their stories and coming out in favour of drug law reform because you look at the combined prison years between them, the health impacts that they face, the stigma they've had, the family they've lost. These are all important stories. And actually, it's very interesting because the recovery movement has always been pitched against us. It's been like, well, people in recovery, they, you know, are 
anti-drug and we're like, well, we're also anti to some extent, but it's, you know, finding that common ground and recognising it's the failure of policy and that it's the policy that needs to change. You've written on examples of public figure addiction, um, specifically someone that really impacted on you was Amy Winehouse, to the point where you even use her in, as the first name, Amy, because it meant that much to you. Do you think we're missing those voices in both the recovery and drug law reform set to those those prominent public figure voices? Um, yeah, I think we do. I, I, yeah, I wrote a lot about Amy Winehouse. Um, just... No, I won't. Um, yeah, no, j- j- okay, so I relapsed and I was like sort of staring over an abyss, if you like, um, and I was, I was drunk as a fucking skunk um, and it was three o'clock in the morning and I put the Amy movie on um, and I watched it and I, did, I wrote in no uncertain terms that she saved my life because watching that film drunk, literally with nowhere to go, a light kind of switched on in my head and went, okay, no, you have to sort this out now. You have to sort it out. Because w- what you saw with Amy Winehouse was that um, she... I, mean, I, I firmly believe it, it wasn't because she died of alcohol poisoning, essentially, um, and a heart attack caused by that, but it wasn't the actual toxicity that killed her. What it was was that she had given up, I think. Um, she'd, her, she had a relapse cycle of, I think it was about three weeks. That, that means she, she was dry for three weeks and then relapsed, and dry for three weeks and relapsed. And that's a really short space of time. Um, it, it takes six to nine weeks, as the GP laid at the front window, it takes six to nine weeks psychologically for you to recover from um, a, a withdrawal and the detox. Um, and she was giving herself three weeks and then just going back on it again. I mean, it was the fact she gave up. Um, and I think we are lacking those voices. We, we're also lacking... Um, we hear a lot from politicians and medical professionals um, and also celebrities, but we need to hear real people's stories as well because while, Amy, while addiction and Amy Winehouse's story, for example... It does transcend class and it does transcend society because anyone can become an addict. Um, I think the voices need to be real and authentic and they need to tell it like it is as well. A lot of people do dress it up somewhat, if you like, and I know when I write about it, I just say it as... I mean, you've read my stuff. I just say it as it is um, because it needs to be said in a way that everyone can relate to and everyone can understand, if you like. So, yeah, and, and, and there is still a stigma attached to it, let me be honest. And as you said, there's still... People turn their noses up at addicts still. Um, and that's going to be your biggest challenge, as you say, the public perception, winning the public over, if you like. And the more authentic voices there are and the more relatable voices there are, the better. So, yeah. Would you say that, Peter, that... Is it difficult to use that voice um, all the while there is a social stigma, but also a legal one, which there was with LGBT back in the day and also is now? How can people have that voice when they are at the mercy of, of the law and uh, social stigma? Yeah, I think it's quite difficult. I mean, going back to the campaign for gay law reform in the 50s and 60s, very few of the campaigners were openly gay. And, you know, the most prominent one, Anthony Gray, uh, used a pseudonym. Anthony Gray was not his real name, but uh, because he feared arrest and possibly being imprisoned and because his partner was uh, a high-flying civil servant whose career would be in jeopardy, he felt he had to use uh, a false name. Um, 
wasn't really till 1964, I think Alan Horsfall was the first gay man who, or certainly one of the first who was a, was a prominent campaigner and declared that he was gay. Um, and that was a very, very big risk. You know, he, he could have in those days been, been arrested and, and jailed. And in those days, the maximum penalty for homosexuality was life imprisonment. Um, so, yeah, it, it is risky. And I think, you know, in the terms of the current um, drug law reform campaign, certainly current users would be putting themselves at risk, although I suspect that the police would, you know, possibly... Well, I think that probably... It depends on where, which police and where, but I think the police might think twice about arresting a prominent person who was part of a campaign if they're a lone individual. But being part of a campaign is sort of gives you some security or some protection. Um, and that's, I suppose, why sort of ex-addicts or ex-users perhaps need to give the, the lead because they'll be safe uh, from prosecution. Is it our job, Jane, do you think, to create uh, an open openness and a, a safety net into what we do in our organisations so that people can actually speak out? I think, I think it's a really interesting one and to see whether it is, because there is an organisation called the International Network of People Who Use Drugs that does exist, and um, I know they have various challenges around uh, membership of, of that and how, how you define um, how you, which, you know, this goes back into this slightly segregated group of different drug users of which... You know, really, a cannabis user isn't a drug user to an injecting drug user. And you get into all those various things. Um, but, but I am very pro-telling stories. And I think the more stories we can hear from a wide variety of people who've been impacted, everything from the... You know, I spoke the other day to a, a school bus driver who said, you'd never believe what I hear on the bus. And I think her story was fascinating. And it's just making the point that these drugs are everywhere. What, what do you think's going on in the clubs, in the, in the festivals, all over the UK? You know, this is happening. And we need to grow up and have that debate and be a bit more pragmatic about this and go, look, how can we make this safer? This, this is really the important thing. And I think if stories can make that debate happen, then, of course, that's our role. Make sure you get your questions ready. I know we've got one here, eager as it goes. Uh, we're going to say goodbye to Peter in a minute, so we're going to give one final word to Peter on where we can go with this, what's going to be our inspiration, just any advice you can give us. First of all, perhaps let someone ask me a question. OK. Right, let's go. You've got one, Judy. Thank you very much. I really think it's been a very useful conversation. Um, we, we do have strong people who use drugs who now do stand up and speak with a clear voice, and we, we need you, you and we need to help those, those stories to come out. And uh, most of the people who, um, who use drugs, as we said, do not have a severe dependency, and that's a, the dependence side of it. It's a different story, which needs to be a health issue. So we do have the drug policy reform. I'd like to thank you very much because I think this conversation has moved us forward. I'm not sure I've got a question, so I'll let you just say what you'd like to say. <laughs> okay, well, give, give someone else a chance to ask a question then. <laughs> thank you very much. Hi, Peter. Um, would you say it's interesting that you say LGBT is similar to drug use um, in that regard because um, LGBT is, would you say, it's a uh, 
it's like your essence, your inner, it's part of your identity. It's, it's everything about you in many ways. Whereas um, with drug use, it could be just like a recreational thing for many people. So the problem is there that you have people that might work some kind of nine to five job. They're just working maybe a FTSE 100 companies. These kind of, you know, they use recreational drugs. They wear suits. But they think drug use is fine, but they're not going to be the martyr. They're not going to be the person that's going to say, yeah, I, I take cocaine the weekends, it's fine, or, you know, I smoke cannabis on the regular, blah, blah, blah. They're not going to be the martyr. And you say you need more people that are, you know, quote-unquote credible, and, you know, the people wearing, like you say, a shirt and tie, but it's difficult to find that because the drug use isn't as much of a part of their life that they're going to be the one to say, oh, I'm, I'm going to fight for that, I'm going to be arrested, because if they're arrested, they lose their job, they lose their house and they lose the credibility, and it's much easier for them to just stay on the down low, do drugs whenever they want, and not get any hassle from the police. So what would you say to that, and how can the drug um, campaign work that into people? You know, how, can they, how can it fix that and get more uh, attention from those people? Yeah, well, you're absolutely right, but you've just said that there are people who are articulate, who are drug users, who are willing and able to speak, and I think you know some as well. So I think just giving them a platform, giving them a voice, telling them telling their stories is going to be the most effective way to go. Uh, so just to find finish, I apologise, I can't stay much longer. Um, but I think, yeah, it's been really useful to have this chat, and I thank my fellow panellists and Jason and all of you. Um, yeah, I do think it's, it's a, this is a really, really important issue. I've been a passionate supporter of drug law reform for decades. Um, having seen in my own life, you know, the damage it's done to family members and to partners and uh, others, friends. So for me, you know, to get change, to get us out of this um, box where, you know, so many people think, you know, it's about all blaming blaming others, blaming the drug user, you know, seeing it as a criminal issue rather than a health issue, you know, not realising the importance of breaking the link with organised crime, all these issues, um, you know, it is really, really important we deal with this because there are so many damaged lives, so many good, wonderful lives that are damaged and we want to bring those people back to fulfil who they really could be. So thank you. Round of applause to Peter. Well, that was a personal pleasure because I've been following Peter's work for many years and to meet him is a genuine thrill. Um, we're going to take a few more questions. Uh, so anybody got, oh, we've got another one over there. Thank you for your questions. I'm always tentative because there's always going to be a silent night in uh, yeah, just a few things you could learn from the LGBT movement. So the word for homophobic was started in the 60s. So why isn't there a word for people who discriminate against drug users or who marginalize? Oh, if there is, why is it not used? Why are you not like pushing it? Why is it not in the public uh, arena like racism or homophobia? And then the other question is, I think you could learn a lot from gay pride. Uh, I mean, celebrating drug use as well. I mean, 90% of people use psychoactive substances and they have a good time with it. So 
why are we not celebrating that? And then the other thing is, even the drug addicts can be proud of themselves. They're human beings like anyone else. They have the human dignity and they're people who need help. So why not work more like from that pride side or like celebrating? Well, first of all, I think there are lots of horrible words to describe drug users. Addict would be, you know, a first one that's very misused and you just need to trawl the mail or... <laughs> I mean, perhaps you're right, perhaps there isn't quite a term, but I think the, the language around drug use is often really quite horrific. Uh, yeah, and in terms of celebrating drug use, I, I think that's an interesting idea. I think it's, it's been such a sensitive area that there's been a lot of uh, caution around ensuring we really make sure we get across some of the real costs of the drug war and really hear the suffering that's been held happening all around the world. And I suppose promoting drug use as a positive thing is a very different line of messaging and not the one that has perhaps happened. But I think there probably is a very good space in the drug policy reform movement for more celebration of drug use. It is really difficult because from an organisational point of view, obviously we have to be very on point with messaging. But you're right, there's a lot of people out there that can use drugs safely, that is part of countercultures and cultures in their own right. And how do you get that across? How do you instil that sense of pride in quotation marks? I don't know if we've got any answers for that. I think that can possibly be an organic movement. Um, you saw it with dance culture and, and, and MDMA, you saw it with cannabis culture is, is growing in this country, it's certainly in Canada, it's, it's pretty huge. Um, is it possible to celebrate drug culture? I think, again, it goes back to that you, you need to differentiate between um, those who are susceptible to addiction and those who can just use it for recreational purposes. Um, I think so, yeah, because you do see it with cannabis. I mean, I, I personally um, see it with loads of people with cannabis. Um, and um, um, hands up, I've used amphetamines loads in my life. Um, I used to use speed every weekend for about six or seven years. Um, interestingly, I did not become addicted to that. I'd be up for three days dancing um, and then stop and be perfectly fine. Um, so, and I found it quite liberating. I enjoyed it. Um, and yeah, so I, I, I think there is, but it, it is going to be extremely difficult for your movement, especially law enforcement. Um, Perhaps <laughs> not for us, but... <clears throat> to be able to do that. Um, so best of luck. And also, I suppose, we've, we have got a very glamorised drug in, this, uh, in our culture, which is alcohol. And actually, a big part of what we're trying to say is that we need to get alcohol under better control. And actually, I've always seen my job as trying to make drugs boring. I think what we've got at the moment is prohibition is the glamour, the excitement, the craziness. You know, we constantly get people in contact going, can we write, make the movie of a drug legalisation? That's going to be great. And we're like, no, it's not. It's going to be really, really boring. What we have now is the exciting glamour. You know, and... Anyway. And that that sums it up, actually, is, is that... The drug law reform movement is predominantly boring because we have to sift through so much facts and figures and, and horrific tales, as we've heard. But at the same time, that's why we've conceived this podcast, is to try and get some cultural movement going. I'm, I, that's predominantly my area, is, is to try and do the marketing of it. Is, and I, have we got there yet with the marketing of it? Do you think we've still got a bit to learn? 
I think we're becoming much more pithy and our, our lines are stronger and I feel we're more coherent and more on message than ever before. But I think we've got things to learn. I wouldn't mind if it's all right speaking to Graham over here. Graham is a future podcast guest. Um, he is good friends with Job Apato. You may have seen um, many films, uh, Graham being in one of them, This Is 40. Uh, Judd is synonymous with, with the cannabis cultures and what, what he puts in his films. Does that, is it different in America to what it is over here? Because you spend a lot of time in America. Would you say there is more of a culture of cannabis use or marijuana than what there is here? Uh, well, the last time I was in Los Angeles, and that's before it became uh, recreationally legal, it's been medically legal for a long time, uh, the use was quite open. And uh, I saw a, a guy, a black guy, sitting on Hollywood Boulevard rolling a joint, and a policeman was out there directing traffic. So it's, it's quite normalised. And figures from uh, Colorado, where you now have recreationally legal cannabis, you have, there's about 300 shops, um, are coming out that younger people, like kids, underage, 40, whatever, their use of cannabis is going down. And it may, you know, I don't know, maybe it's because also another figure is that 38% of the business of Sonola Cartel has been taken away because of these legalization uh, efforts. And uh, also, you know, if, if underage people, if their drug taking really is going down in Colorado, um, it may be because, you know, what young kid wants to use a substance that their old granny is using to treat their lumbago. I mean, it takes it right away. I mean, when I was young and started discovering drugs, I thought it was great being a criminal, you know. I, th I thought it was very exciting that I was the kid, you know, with the long hair in the village and somebody, hey, LSD Parker. Yeah, that's me, buddy, you know. I thought it was very, very cool. And uh, I think the more it's uh, brought into society as something that's, um, you know, not um, stigmatised and we're not hounded by the drug squad, the less that young people will be interested, underage people I'm talking about. Because you have to have regulation with age, I think. Yes, I think the developing brain needs to be respected. Um, so America, it's... But now we have the Trump administration, administration with uh, Mr Jeff Sessions, you know, um, and people like that. So it's going to be interesting to see what comes next with this. I mean, are they going to break up the Colorado... Uh, um, legalization by sending federal police into Colorado? Will the police in Colorado fight those police? Will the police in Colorado have to agree with the federal laws if they clamp down on this experiment? Will you now have eight states where it's, it's legal? And um, it, it's ahead. England seems to be so far behind to me. Um, it's just depressing for me to be in England to see... You know, Theresa May is, is going to be the Prime Minister for the next, what, five years or something. She is not going to move an inch, I can assure you. She will not move an inch. And talking to my local politician, who is Labour, she doesn't get it at all. She repeated to me the oft-told line of, drug-taking is down this year. You know, our policy is working. And, uh, you know, and she also said, you, you know, it's unfortunate. One of the things she said which blew my mind was, well, we can't say anything because... The press will kill us. You know, if, you, if you're a politician and your name is Douglas and you say, I think cannabis or any drugs should be... You'll be Dougie Druggy from then on in the Daily Mail. So they're, they're actually scared 
They are scared. We elect these officials and they're scared to talk out about it, even though many of them know this is a disaster. The war on drugs is an absolute disaster. And it's, it's, the harm is, you know, incredible that the war on drugs has caused, much more than the drugs could cause. <clears throat> so I think uh, America is, is a very interesting place to be right now and to watch this, uh, uh, you know, growing and or maybe being crushed. We'll see what happens. I'm going to take the microphone away for Graham because he is a future guest and I want you to keep a lot of that back because there's some gold from you. And we've got Andrea over here. So um, just to say um, who I am. So I did a lot of reform work and then I had Millie, so I got a bit... Uh, but um, I really wanted to hear tonight because I've done a lot of AIDS work with the gay community, obviously, and, uh, you know, I'm an ex-injection drug user and my husband died of AIDS and all this stuff and history and stuff. But the one thing I will say, because I totally agreed with your comment about Theresa May, I feel very embarrassed about where we are after... You know, there were years when we started to feel like we were getting somewhere in this country. There was traction with uh, Blunkett years ago. But I think, you know, and, you know, you can throw things at me and call me a dreamer, but, you know, sometimes you've just got to dream in these, uh, you know, times are very dark, I think, at the moment for us in England, is there is a huge number of people now who are bloody furious about a lot of things. I happen to be one of them, so I won't go into that. And, you know, maybe if we could start joining the dots between all the different activist movements, we would have some... You know, that's why I'm really glad what is happening here tonight is happening, because, you know... It's like we've all got issues, and they, all, they actually do all connect together around the socioeconomics, in my mind, but some people may disagree with that. But one thing that is for certain is that we all suffer oppression in great numbers, and actually people are now dying from poverty, which, I mean, I couldn't even have... You know, sort of just the thought of it is... Uh, you know, in this country, you know, like, people think you can come here and, and you know... Anyway, I've made my point. I'm not going to get... I think a round of applause there. Can I just say, I think that I think you're absolutely spot on. Um, it's what I started off by saying about lesbian gays supporting the minors, the fact that they had a common enemy, which was the Conservative government at the time, and that's initially why they came together. Um, but I think your point about poverty is interesting as well because that's a, 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 with regards to the, the drug reform that you're proposing, um, it's something you will need to address because statistically, and it's, I know it is with alcohol, um, that uh, hospital admissions, inpatient admissions... Um, um, alcohol-related liver disease, it's all higher amongst the lowest socio-economic classes. Um, interestingly, with alcohol, though, across the seven socio-economic statuses, um, alcohol consumption is the same. There's a hardly any difference between the top tier, um, upper classes we used to call them, and the bottom tier, the, um, the, the proletariats. Um, but because the lower classes drink and binge in such successions, um, it, it has a far more damaging effect. So I, I think class and socioeconomics has to come into this somewhere, as that lady, lady quite rightly pointed out. What I do think is we are... Our government is distracted right now. I think this is an issue that internationally is gaining traction and has a lot of momentum behind it. And I think what the US has done is very interesting. I mean, the US has held up this policy internationally for years and they're contradicting themselves on it. And I certainly know there are a lot of Latin American countries looking very eagerly and going, ah? 
And, and I can't help thinking that this is a snowball, and I genuinely feel we've passed a tipping point on this. And I think in the UK, yes, we're not going to pioneer, but we are re currently responding to our own crisis. We have the highest drug overdates, death, overdose rates in Europe at the moment, something that no one seems to know. It's actually the highest since records ever began. And I think as a response to that, we're now looking at introducing safe injecting facilities. We're starting to see... Uh, police officers exploring decriminalisation in local areas. And I think this debate, whilst not front page, is going on at the back of the paper right now and soon we'll be, we'll be shifting things. And I really am positive that we're in the last 10 years of this failed policy. So we're going to start to wrap up now because um, I think Jane might need to be going fairly soon. Um, so if we got one more question, and by the way, if you uh, any links that we've mentioned tonight, they'll all be on the site. If you go to acast.com slash stop and search, there'll be little scrolling banners and all the links pop up, including Steve's work, including what Jane and I have been talking about. Um, so we've got one more question right at the back there. Oh, yeah, I promised, didn't I? Here's Ian. Yesterday, Sadiq Khan published the policing plan for the next four years for London. Um, I think drugs are mentioned about six, eight times, and it's just on the basis of um, if people are arrested, uh, they just get passed on to different um, facilities that are going to deal with them, but there's no cohesive plan, and we don't have a separate police and crimes commissioner like the County of Durham has, who've introduced the HA, or are going to introduce HAT, um, heroin-assisted therapy, um, who've taken the, the trouble to say, look, it's just not worth expending the, the police time and resources on arresting people for cannabis cultivation, possession. Um, so I don't know if it's a good thing that the mayor hasn't got any kind of policy stated. He's obviously not cracking down any harder. Um, you know, he hasn't come out and said, I support Westminster, let's make Spicer Class A so that we can criminalise these people even further. But he hasn't said anything, he hasn't taken anything on board. So this is where the similarity is with the LGBTQ um, movement, is we've been ignored. And it's more of a call to arms, is that through law enforcement for, against prohibition, we need to get the, the medical evidence behind it and, and actually come together and fight this policy. So whether it's a question of somebody setting up... I mean, the safe injection sites in, in Canada, all right, Insight has been there for 12 years, 15 years. But it's, 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 it's only in the past 12 months that the community, because there were so many intravenous drug users in the downtown east side, they've come together because of the fentanyl crisis and said, we're not putting up with this. And they've just turned up with pop-up gazebos, plastic garden furniture, in the back alleys, and Naxlon kits. And they're saying, come, shoot up, sit around for 40 minutes, if you're OK, off you go. But there's about three or four of these sites there now. And it's, and it's, it's something like that that we need. So whether it's somebody somewhere in a, a high-density area, um, where there are nightclubs, maybe Vauxhall, who turns up with a pop-up gazebo and says, come and get your pills tested here, like the loop does, but they're, they're trying to do legally. 
it's that. Whether it's somebody who takes over a site in Westminster or breaks into the former Holloway prison and says, let's take these homeless people who are addicted to spice, who possibly they were only smoking skunk before they got sent to prison, but now they're homeless and they're smoking spice. Let's offer them somewhere where they can safely smoke this. We know that the medical evidence is there that the only way you're going to get them off of it is to wean them off maybe with skunk. Um, Val Cohen will tell the um, mental health community the only way you're going to get these people off of skunk is to give them something with a bit more um, cannibal in it. So it's, it's this whole thing of it is all joined up. I think it's a very interesting point. Sorry. I think it's a very interesting point. I think it, um, the, the, that kind of feeds into the wider political debate at the moment about marginalised people in society generally, um, because uh, Sadiq Khan, um, whatever you think of him, um, just two months ago he said there was emergency shelters for homeless people going up across the city. I work a lot with a group, school, a group called uh, Streets Kitchen, um, who are, they call themselves Solidarity, not Charity. They go out, so they're all former rough sleepers or homeless people themselves. They go and work with homeless people, feed them, uh, make sure they have shelter and they say Sadiq Khan has done bugger all um, since he's come to power to deal with the chronic problem of homelessness in the capital um, and so you're seeing people who again have experienced homelessness and rough sleeping just going you know what sod this we're going to deal with it ourselves and I think as you say that may well have to be currently the solution if Sadiq hasn't put anything um, any policy proposals forward that may well have to be the solution for the time being that um, people who are users or ex-users are putting forward their own solutions and you see with disabled people as well they're doing exactly the same things marginalised groups in society are having to fight for themselves at the moment so it, it, like I say it feeds into a wider political problem we have um, I, it's a perfect point to wrap up on, isn't it, Jane, is that we are, there's, there's pop-up movements that are sorting this issue out themselves, so if, if the government doesn't follow, the society's going to lead. Where can we expect to go from here? Any plugs you want to get in as well? Any plugs? Please check out the Anyone's Child website, of course. Of course. <laughs> yeah, please check us out. If you've got a story to tell, we're, we want to tell the full range of stories of how the struggle is impacting... So that's everything from stories of criminalisation, of health harms, um, of overdose, you know, the full range of stories, and, and even going through from producer stories all the way through the production line. I think it's the time's come, and we're back here on the 19th of April to launch Anyone's Child Mexico, so please come and join us. Nice. <laughs> and Steve... A little wrap-up from you. Where can we go? I mean, you've got a different side of this from us. You're, you're a journalist. You're reporting on different things. How can you direct us better? I think, firstly, there needs to be unity, as I said, to start from health professionals, legal professionals, law enforcement professionals and um, users themselves. Um, I think you need that. Uh, I, I think, to put it in the most simple terms I can, and don't take offence by this. Um, if you look at how Donald Trump and Nigel Farage managed to capture the public's imagination, uh, bear would go with me on this. <laughs> They're very good at tapping into emotions and feelings and and people's. Um, uh, really grabbing hold of people's emotions and feelings and going with that. And with the public, I believe that's what you have to do. That's why we're seeing a sort of distancing from establishment politicians. We're not seeing the likes of suits like Tony Blair. Um, those kind of politicians are not successful anymore. 
politicians who tap into how people are feeling is successful. And with this campaign, you need to tap into what people are feeling. And I think that's why um, your campaign is so important. And that's what you're going to need to do is find a way of getting the public to come on board with you and come on side and really support it by getting them to feel and believe in what you're, what you're campaigning for. A round of applause for Steve there. And thank you so much for coming. This has been Stop and Search podcast under Distraction Pieces Network with Scroobius Pip. Thank you so much. Bye. I found myself becoming more of a listener than a participant in that one because I I was just so interested in what the other guests had to say and I can't thank them enough for coming along. Uh, I know I say it every time, but I just found it incredibly fascinating this is yeah you know, it doesn't matter if anybody listens to these podcasts i just end up enjoying them so so thanks a lot peter tatchell steve topple jay slater you're absolutely tremendous guests and this is where i do a little bit more of an informal outro um because i want to tell you that i've now got a new bit of kit yay because until now i've been doing the uh intros and outros into my own sock drawer via my phone uh, which is probably more information than you need but because I've now got a new bit of kit, it means that I can be a bit more mobile. I can hopefully do a few more one-on-one podcasts because, believe it or not, you can't always ask guests to uh, speak into your own sock drawer. There's, there's etiquette, um, you yeah, know, podcast 101. So, yes, I'm rambling. Thanks to Nikki, the producer, who is now obviously quite clearly sacked because I have new equipment. Um, I would say that was a joke, but there's no punchline there because... Without Nicky, this podcast would not exist because he is a technical genius and wizard. Thanks, Nicky. Along with Adam, my name is Ad. Thank you so much for all the artwork you give us. You make us look glossy and shiny. You are an absolute star. Uh, don't forget to check out all the other podcasts on the Distraction Pieces Network, Scroopius Pips, Susie Gages, Just Say Why to Drugs, which is just scorching off into the into the uh, sunset with just massive viewing figures and winning awards, along with uh, Tuesday Night Jaw uh, with Jim Smallman, uh, a personal favourite of mine. And there's a new podcast, the Distraction Pieces Network, coming, Harcourt Listening, so I'm going to be uh, subscribing to that one as well. I think that about covers it. Uh, we've got lots more coming your way from Stop and Search. Uh, make sure you keep doing all the things you need to do, like like, share, subscribe, share us on social media, just suggest guests, you know what to do. So uh, until the next one, thanks a lot for joining us again, guys, and bye. Behind your barricades Yeah, but how long can I stay? Behind your barricades Where true values seldom stray Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff: shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.